Welcome to episode 56 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my guest is Liam Daly, a recovering maritimer, former Haligonian, and avant cinephile, now based in Ottawa. Liam talked his way onto the podcast to discuss the era of Daniel Craig as James Bond, which just wrapped up after 15 years with the long-awaited release of No Time to Die. Liam, welcome to Junk Filter. Jesse, it is an absolute honor and pleasure to be here with you. Uh, I said this to you before we started work recording, but knowing that you've had such cinephiles as Jared Yates Sexton and Will Medeker on here, I feel like I'm walking in the shoes of giants. So, I, But I'm very excited about this topic. Uh, you originally told me that we were going to talk about the Eternals for three hours and that we were going to discuss the <laughs> fighters versus the thinkers, but uh, I'll take a, a consolation prize of, of, of the Craig Bond era any day. Before we get going on this discussion, I just want to advise the listener that you should see No Time to Die before listening to this show. We're not going to be doing wall-to-wall spoilers, but we may reveal a couple of things that may wreck a couple of the big twists. And go see it in a theater. I went to see it in a normal format, but I heard that I should have seen it in IMAX. How did you see it, Liam? I saw it in AVX, which I would highly recommend. Not in any of the D-Box seats that rattle or like the wind blows on you, but like it was mm-hmm. a very enhanced sound quality and it, it really made a big boost with the uh, the action scenes. After I got home, I found out that the opening in Italy was shot in the IMAX format. And so I was kind of pissed off that I didn't think about that before buying my ticket. I'm sure we'll get into it, but that uh, opening is one of my favorites of the entire series. And I think the listeners of the show will be blown away by it when they uh, when they see it. Yeah, I second that. I, I think maybe, I don't know if I liked the movie enough to watch it again in a movie theater so quickly after the first time. Uh, but when I go see it again, I will go the extra mile and we'll go watch it in IMAX. Maybe in like a year or something, it'll show at the Cinesphere in Toronto. Maybe I'll just go and see it then. Uh, but I want to say before the before we really get into it that I liked No Time to Die. And that's something because I didn't like Skyfall or Spectre. I went into this thinking, okay, let's just find out how this whole thing ends. But I thought it was good. I thought it was like a real Bond movie. I was disarmed, if you'll pardon the pun, by how fun the movie was, considering how dark some of the material gets. It was going back to the the stuff that I think of when I think of James Bond, which are the big Ken Adams sets, like uh, the big spectacular finale with the bad guy, the evil genius with the hidden base on the secret island who has a doomsday plot. The earlier Craig movies have had stuff like that in it, but it's never ended that way. You know, like the bad guy in Skyfall had a a secret base on a remote Island, but that was all done in the first hour. You want the bond movie to climax in a location like that. You want jokes and you want gags and you want uh, crappy puns when he kills a bad guy. And the Craig movies were kind of, devoid of that they were taking this thing so seriously when they did do comedy it was a little forced whereas in this movie it flowed really nicely yeah i agree i think they got you know campy is not the right word and certainly not in comparison to some of the ones in the 70s and the 80s but i think it did they developed more of a sense of humor as they went along i'm kind of reminded of the first time that uh 
Ben Wishaw's Q meets Daniel Craig's Bond in Skyfall, he intones, mm -hmm. we don't really go for the whole exploding pen thing anymore, but by Spectre, he's back to using a uh, exploding watch, which of course disfigures Ernest, Ernest Stafford with Blofeld. So yeah. I, I do think that they got more of a sense of humor and kind of the things that were fun about the earlier ones mm -hmm. back, and I think that's very present in this movie. Uh, the action scenes feel fun. Obviously, the entire uh, sequence that takes place in Cuba is a great hearkening back to kind of some of those earlier types of set pieces. So, uh, no, I'm in, I'm in full agreement. I think it uh, it got its groove back more in, in, in the humor department by the, by the end of the uh, Craig era. Craig wound up being the longest-serving 007. He was on the job two years longer than Roger Moore, although Moore made seven Bond movies and Craig only made five. And there were also these big, long breaks between Craig's films. Like, it was four years between Quantum of Solace and Skyfall. And then with the pandemic, it added up to be five years between Spectre and No Time to Die. That's right. This is the first I saw Spectre in theaters when I still live in Halifax in the fall of 2015 for me the announcement in march of 2020 of the postponement of the release of no time to die was my first big hint that the global pandemic was going to screw up our lives <laughs> and like our cultural lives as well as uh our, you know our day-to-day -day lives like i this is so bad that they have to postpone the new james bond movie that's how it felt to me and it's kind of funny because it became a benchmark as the pandemic went on of when we were getting out of this like oh no they've moved bond again <laughs> it kind of felt like it was going to be the first the the new it would be a return to normal would be going to see the bond movie and i must say uh, I was as excited as Tom Cruise at the Tenet premiere when I went to see Bond last Sunday. It was sadly uh, the second movie I've seen in the post-COVID era, uh, but a very nice palate cleanser uh, after having seen The Many Saints of Newark earlier that week. <laughs> I heard that was terrible. It was not. Uh, it did. Uh, so This isn't my joke. I've heard others make this elsewhere, but uh, it didn't have the makings of a Varsity sequel. So it was supposed to come out in April of 2019, but then they replaced Danny Boyle with uh, Corey Fukunaga. Who I thought did a very good job here. Oh, yeah. And I am hopeful that Danny Boyle will someday return to helm a Bond film. But yeah. uh, th this movie looks beautiful and mm -hmm. has great, you know, he is a great director for action. Uh, with the somewhat limited sequences that you see in True Detective and, and things like that. So I was, yeah. uh, you know, a very able replacement, I would dare say. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so they postponed the movie until the fall of 2020, and then they announced that they were going to postpone it again until the fall of 2021, where we are now. This film's postponements were so numerous that they wound up having to do some reshoots because some of the products in the movie had been rebranded in the meantime. So they had to reshoot those scenes. They had to reshoot some like cut-ins on products and stuff like that. One of the things, and you know, for the benefit of the audience, I don't want to get too heavy into spoiler territory, but there are things that happened in this film that it's kind of remarkable. They kept under wraps for a year and a half. I know. I know. They did a really good job because you would 
like the Bond theme was on the radio. Like the movie was a month away from coming out when they stopped it. There are billboards in my neighborhood for No Time to Die last year. This is the, the song was on the radio, and then uh, suddenly they had to yank the movie and keep a lid on some pretty surprising turns of events. This is the uh, this is the punishment for their hubris of breaking with tradition and attempting to release it in April as opposed to its traditional November December window for the I previous know. films. Yeah, Bond movies need to come out in November. I feel, and in my experience, certainly through the Brosnan and Craig ones, have most of my life. Yeah, you, you get ready to see Bond around Christmas time. Yeah, but uh, I guess they wanted some of that Marvel money, right? Putting it out in April on the Avenger timeline. You know, there's an interesting fun fact. Trump was the first president since John F. Kennedy where a Bond movie didn't come out during his presidency. That was another thing that the pandemic screwed up for his his legacy. He didn't get a Bond movie while he was president. Could have saved him in the 2020 election. If only it had come out when it was supposed to in April. (laughs) I know, but like even Jimmy Carter had a Bond movie. (laughs) He had The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. Even Ronald Reagan, who actually had quite a few in that 81 to 88 or 81 to 89 time span. Yeah. When I was a kid, you only had to wait two years between Bond movies. And even when they switched Bonds, they still put a movie out immediately. That was the Living Daylights. Oh, my God. There's, this could be a five-hour show, Liam. <laughs> too much to talk about. Um, let's begin with uh, what did you think of uh, the Daniel Craig era, him as Bond? So when the announcement was made in late 2005 that Daniel Craig would be helming uh, the franchise, taking over for Pierce Brosnan, I was skeptical. I had only seen him as the the goon in uh, Munich, as the son of Paul Newman in Road to Perdition, uh, and I had not at that point seen Layer Cake, which I think, as you intoned earlier, laid a lot of the groundwork and made his case quite strongly for it. Um, I remember, and I watched this again on YouTube uh, in preparation for the show, how much pomp and circumstance there was around his announcement that he came in on a boat, he came up the Thames mm-hmm. in, a, uh, in a boat, was greeted by the Royal Marines and uh, was given the, uh, the full treatment by the, the broccolis. Uh, I was very, very happy to be wrong when I saw Casino Royale in theaters in November of 2006, absolutely blown away by what he brought to the role the physicality, uh, obviously, uh, far and away the most jacked Bond. <laughs> yeah, um, and really kind of and, but really inherited the uh, the mantle, and you really felt like it was a strong continuity. Um, as we have said, these movies uh, took themselves quite seriously, uh, did different things with the franchise in terms of. Uh, building its own universe, eventually, uh, I think somewhat to its discredit, connecting them all, uh, all the villains uh, into Spectre as part of a broader thing as opposed to just the uh, series of one-offs in the earlier films. I, uh, I used to make the joke about having been very uh, wrong about very few things in my life, but Craig as Bond was definitely one of them <laughs> and never, never happier to be wrong than I was. I knew who Daniel Craig was primarily because he was the boyfriend of Kate Moss for a while. So I knew who he was just from being a handsome young British actor. 
And um, when I saw Layer Cake, I uh, thought that this was... Uh, when I heard that he was the new Bond, I thought of how good he was in Layer Cake. And I imagine that Layer Cake wound up being kind of his demo reel in some ways for him being able to be the new sort of British uh, handsome tough guy, a little bit rough trade, you know, just a little, uh, uh, he seemed like trouble, but he could also wear a suit and get away with looking, uh, handsome and, you know, looking like he belongs in various environments, but with a brute sort of side to him, he, he had sort of a wolf's face. That's what it looked like to me. Um, when I saw Munich, uh, I was sort of auditioning, uh, Daniel Craig cause I knew he was going to be bond. And he's part of the team of the Israelis who are uh, getting revenge on the uh, the Munich massacre in the 1972 Olympics. And he's really good in it, but he also seemed very James Bondish uh, in some ways. Like I was looking at him going, oh, yeah, no, he'll be good as Bond. Just the way that he held himself on screen and how menacing he was uh, and how adept he was with the action moments in that film. Uh, so I had no concerns when when they said that Daniel Craig was Bond. And I liked Casino Royale a lot when I saw it, but it's a grower too. Now I think that it might be the best Bond movie. It's certainly aged very well. And I think that, you know, some of that is the success of its uh, actors. Obviously, Eva Green has got a never great career. Mads Mikkelsen has had a, a, a outstanding career. Um, the politics of it haven't aged particularly badly to the extent it has any, although I do, I kind of forgot and laugh, burst out laughing when uh, Judy Dench's M intones that Le Schiff might have had uh, a role in, in 9-11. <laughs> yeah. See, Bond movies are very superficial. They just have to say it in a line of dialogue uh, for you to accept it, like, a lot of movies would make that be a big plot point, like that, you know, that Bond was avenging uh, Le Chiffre for what happened in 9-11, which I didn't get the feeling while I was watching the movie. That sort of little detail just flew over my head. <laughs> but you're right. I was on board with Craig, and he is a great James Bond, even if I'm not entirely happy with how his movies turned out. Uh, I'm not as huge on all five of the movies. There are things that they all have in common. Like Craig is excellent in them all. And the photography in all five is great. And the editing is great for me. Uh, I got annoyed when they started trying to tie the whole thing up. Maybe we should talk a little bit about, um, the connection between quantum of solace and casino Royale. Cause I think that got their thinking going that you could hook all these movies together. Cause that had never been done before in a bond film. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, it had continuity of characters on a couple of fronts that uh, Felix Leiter obviously appeared in multiple bond films, usually as under different actors in the sixties mm -hmm. and seventies, but Giancarlo G uh, Gianni reprises his role as Mathis. Yeah. Uh, who I kind of forgot, Bond gets killed using yeah. him as a human shield. <laughs> I know. And then dumps him unceremoniously in the trash and takes his money. Mm -hmm. um, so don't travel to Bolivia with James Bond would be my, yeah. uh, a lesson to take away from it. But yeah, to your point, starts right after the other one picked up as he has uh, Jesper Christensen's Mr. White, uh, who begins to put, although it does not yet have a name, intones the uh, the size and scope of the Spectre organization. Mm -hmm. Well, in the first, in Quantum of Solace, uh, 
there used to be a, a, an organization in the Bond universe called Spectre, and we'll get into that in a couple of minutes. But for the purposes of this series, it's we're dealing with this super secret terror organization called Quantum. And they have like meetings in like a secret meetings out in the open. Like they all go to this big opera that's being put on in, in Vienna and they, they've all got special headsets and they're all talking to each other during the opera and James Bond sort of interrupts them. That's a great scene. Actually, that sequence in the opera house. It is. And the, both for the action that comes right after it um, and the way that it's set up, Rewatching Quantum of Solace, I'm really surprised that it hasn't held up. You know, that more people don't hold it up as a uh, a lot of people cite it as the weakest one of the Craig era, and I really don't think that's the case. It also looks really good. Uh, mm-hmm. The the interfaces and the technology, like you know, the big supercomputer they're using at MI6, all looks really crisp and sheen. Maybe it's because of the era that it came out in in 2008, where it was kind of. You know, other people were doing work in this space, the the uh, Matt Damon Bourne movies, things like that, mm-hmm. that there wasn't as strong an app. But maybe it's the, as you intoned, the uh, somewhat left-wing politics of the plot. Um, mm-hmm. It's But it's odd to me that more people don't like Quantum of Solace. Uh, watching it the other night, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it's a very solid entry in the series. Yeah. Um, I'll admit that I first saw Casino Royale on video. I didn't go and see it in a theater. I watched it on video and I was knocked out by it. Every once in a while, there's a movie that I don't see in a theater. And then I kick myself when I finally see it on video, why I didn't go and see it in a theater. Because uh, I would have freaked out for Casino Royale uh, if I saw it in a theater. Maybe that's why I thought it was pretty good when I watched it on video the first time. But it's just grown in my estimation. It's an incredible uh, movie. It's so exciting and funny. And uh, the edit the editor was Stuart Baird who's one of the great action editors. I think he's the secret sauce as to why Casino Royale is so good. One other thing that occurred to me um, is that, you know, the significance of this may be purely cosmetic, but of course, Daniel Craig is the first Bond where there was kind of, you know, he was the first Bond of an era where Cubby Broccoli was not at the helm of any of the films, mm-hmm. uh, having died in the late 90s, where Desmond Llewellyn does not appear as Q at any point, also having passed away in 1999, but being in the first three uh, yeah. Brosnan films. So really kind of a break from, uh, you know, the ties that buy, the ties that laced the other five gentlemen uh, together through the decades. Yeah, the only thing that they brought over was Judy Dench as M. Other than that, it was a complete uh, refresh of the series. But I thought that it was really good. Like the idea of like finding out how 007 came to be and not making it a period piece, but, you know, uh, using the James Bond character the way that I always imagined him since he's been played by so many actors that it's a code name. Like this is the new James Bond. Yeah, and to your point, I mean, really building up the continuity through the films, of course, Casino Royale has the original sin, the, the death of Vesper Wind that we, mm-hmm. we know then haunts him through the next four movies, even into uh, No Time to Die, to which yeah. I, I think is great in terms of giving him pathos and giving him kind of that, that inner torment but I, I always think it's kind of funny because, you know, it feels like he only knew Vesper Lynn for about like two weeks before she yeah. died. I know. 
Well, this is one of the the grimmest because Bond is kind of a misogynist, right? At his core, there's a, there's something misogynistic about James Bond. There's certainly something sexist about him. I remember being kind of like revolted in a kind of fun way. Like I, even when a Bond movie is revolting or offensive to me, I still kind of enjoy it anyway. <laughs> like just it's because it Bond movies are fundamentally bad. You know, it's it's about how much enjoyment you can have and how good they can make it. But Bond movies, uh, you know, to me, sort of start off in this place where they're not they're they're their own thing compared to uh, other kinds of films. So I always grade them all on a curve. So we're supposed to think that James Bond lost Vesper Lind, who, yes, he knew for two weeks uh, and that he's still pining for her over four films in Quantum of Solace. uh, The main Bond girl he doesn't even sleep with Olga Kurylenko. Uh, plays the Bond girl in Quantum of Solace, and they have a chaste relationship, which is strange for James Bond anyway. But here's an example of like the cavalier misogyny of James Bond that rubbed me the wrong way, even though I was still laughing and enjoying just because it was so stupid. In Tomorrow Never Dies, uh, Bond is reintroduced to this former flame played by Terry Hatcher, who was miscast. Uh apparently it was going to be Monica Bellucci at one point. It should have been. So they're together and she's married to the bad guy in the bond movie. And, but they have a little tryst because of course the flame has never died between the two of them. And then Carver has her killed. Uh, bond comes into the room and sees that he sent a doctor over to sort of drug overdose her and make it look like bond did it. And so the big love of his life just got killed. And then five minutes later, James Bond is in the backseat of his car driving around a parking lot with a little remote control. And he's mugging like he's like laughing and smiling. And it's like, didn't your girlfriend just die five minutes ago? It was so gross. (laughs) But now Bond is obsessed with a woman for four whole movies. I am also I'm a big fan of the scene you're describing, if only because of the the brief cameo appearance of uh, Vincent Chiavelli as Doctor yes. Kaufman, who is a, a a great, albeit brief, uh, entry in the in the pantheon of of Bond henchmen. Let's get back to Quantum of Solace because I, I I liked it when I saw it. Everybody I knew around me said it was the worst Bond movie they'd ever seen, which is people hated it. <laughs> It's kind of odd to me. Well, and it's 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 certainly aged well. It's you know, if anyone was doubting the plausi- the plausibility of a CIA backed coup in Bolivia to gain access to precious natural resources, they needed only wait a decade. It's a good thing that uh, Matthew Almerick's character stayed off of Twitter and didn't uh, just blurt out at some random uh, number. Yeah. We we coup whoever we want. I know. But, Matthew Amalric is no match for Bond physically. But I kind of liked him as this sort of, you know, wimpy Bond villain who lets the bigger guys around him do the dirty work. Uh, And he certainly looks like a Bond villain. I'm a huge fan of him as an actor. And I was so thrilled when he was cast as the villain in Quantum of Solace. And I can never entirely dislike a movie where Matthew Almorick is the bad guy. But um, what I like about Quantum of Solace is that it's short. Like we finally get a 107 minute action movie. Like all the other Bond movies have been at least two and a half hours. Like coming up on two and a half and the new one is coming up on three. 
yeah, and although I found that it clipped along, it was definitely wanting for uh, for runtime. Um, the only other thing I put uh, just a, a little connection for Matthew uh, Amorik is, of course, that he was Louis in Munich, the, the, yes. son, the son of Michael Lonsdale in that movie himself, uh, one of the all-time Bond villains is Hugo Drax. So a nice yes. little bit of continuity through the decades there. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, I hadn't made that connection uh, when I watched Corn of Solace, but then I thought about it later. But yes, um, I guess when I watched Munich again, I was like, oh my God, the two, there's three Bond guys in this movie. <laughs> um, anyway, so so Quantum of Solace, people didn't like it. I'll tell you a funny story. I went down to Buenos Aires in Argentina and I watched Quantum of Solace while I was down there. And it was a packed theater. It was in English with Spanish subtitles. And it, we all had a great time. But what was so funny about the movie watching it in a, in an audience full of Argentinos was that uh, there's a scene where they're in Bolivia and the Bolivian cab driver is talking and won't shut up while they're driving to the hotel. And Giancarlo Giannini is getting really pissed off at him and they're yelling at each other in Spanish. And there were no subtitles uh, for the version that I saw. So I didn't exactly know what they were saying, but the theater was dying at a Bolivian guy getting yelled at. Because Argentina is very chauvinistic. They love jokes about other countries down in South America. I'll tell you, there was a famous headline in an Argentine uh, newspaper when there was this bus accident. And the, the headline was, 18 people and one Bolivian die. Like so chauvinistic down there. Like they love to get shots in. So they were cracking up so hard when Giannini was telling this Bolivian guy to shut up. It was so much fun. I had heard that about Argentines and uh, Chileans because of the, yeah. the geographic closeness, but it, I suppose it doesn't come as a big shock that that extends to the rest of South America. I was talking to this Argentine guy. Uh, we were talking about empanadas and how, where you can get them in Canada. And, I was telling him that they were really good in Montreal. Uh, and he was like, oh, really? Uh, are they Argentine? And I said, no, they're Chilean. There are a lot of Chileans in Montreal. And he said, oh, no, I don't think I'm going to eat those. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> so funny. It's funny the way you learn things now, uh, that they have a large Chilean population, which surprised me. I, w I went to a, during the FIFA Juniors tournament in 2007, I went to a, a, a quarterfinal between Chile and Nigeria, and was blown away by how many Chilean fans there were at Olympic Stadium. Yeah. So back to this unfathomable reason why people don't like Quantum of Solace. Um, yeah, it's it's very superficial in its leftist politics. But yes, the CIA are the villains. They're, the villain is an environmentalist who's actually a vulture capitalist. The CIA is supporting this dictator in Bolivia, and so he's a friend of the United States, so James Bond... Uh, can't really touch him because of his association with quantum, I guess, but he gets him anyway. And at the end of the movie, he leaves Matthew Amalric to die in the desert with only a can of motor oil in the country that he worked to exploit. That's pretty left to me. Uh, you'll hear no, you'll hear no disagreement from me on that front. I think the Almeric character is a very good stand in for, the Elon Musks and, and Bezoses of our of our yeah. our current uh, culture. Also, something I re I 
remembered uh, rewatching it again. The, the delightful performance of uh, David Harbour as the uh, oh, yeah. CIA station chief for South yeah. America. Yeah. So I think it has a healthy um, sort of pro Latin America position on U.S. foreign policy for a James Bond movie. It's not heavy duty uh, sloganeering or or anything, but it's certainly not uh, necessarily reactionary. But again, it's all shallow and superficial. I just like to see any kind of leftist shit when it shows up in a big blockbuster. Um, so we should move on to Skyfall. Uh, I don't like Skyfall all that much. Um, I wish I did, but I just don't. It's fine. I don't love it. A lot of people love Skyfall and would say it's the best James Bond movie. They feel about it the way I feel about Casino Royale, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think there were kind of elements of finality in it, in it, obviously, with the death of Judy Dench's M and, you know, talking about mm-hmm. the end of Empire and quoting Tennyson and all of this. And then they kept the series going for two more movies. Uh, I agree with you. I don't hold Skyfall in quite the esteem that uh, everybody else does. Uh, you know, a lot of people rank it as perhaps the best one ever made. Um mm-hmm. I do love the uh, the performance of uh, Javier Bardem as Raul Silva, and mm-hmm. and some of the action sequences, particularly the one shot in Shanghai where he's trying to take out the assassin as they move through all these interactive screens and mirrors, is is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. But I, uh, yeah, I don't. There was it felt like kind of a, a cultural touchstone and a big moment. Obviously, the Adele song was everywhere. Craig showed up as Bond at the opening of the Olympics that year. (laughs) Yeah. And it was the 50th anniversary of Dr. No. So they really went all out. And that year we also had a big James Bond exhibition at Bell Lightbox. We had the suit that uh, Javier Bardem was wearing in Skyfall. I got excited at, at some of the really cheesy gadgets from the Living Daylights and License to Kill era Bond movies. Like they were they were on display too. But uh, yeah, so that was like, and that was a blockbuster. That was the first James Bond movie to make a billion dollars. Then they followed it up with Spectre. We should go off track a little bit to talk about how Quantum turned into Spectre. And it has to do with these crazy issues about the rights. Do you know anything about all this stuff? I don't, but I'd be delighted to be uh, enlightened on it because I didn't really put that together initially. In the 60s, there was this guy named Kevin McClory who helped Ian Fleming out um, uh, adapting the novel Thunderball for a a big screen production. He actually retains producer credit on the James Bond, the official James Bond Thunderball but Kevin McClory owned the rights or claimed the rights and he, and he was held and it was held up in court, I guess, to the creation of Blofeld and to to the creation of Spectre and to the plot of Thunderball. So the bond franchise wound up losing the rights after diamonds are forever to using Blofeld or Spectre. In For Your Eyes Only, there's a, there's a moment where a guy who is never identified but is a bald guy in a wheelchair gets killed. And that was uh, Eon Productions giving the sort of in-joke fuck you to Kevin McClory, like letting him know that they don't need the character anymore. And they got rid of him on screen to start the movie. And then a couple of years later, McClory made Never Say Never Again, 
which was a remake of Thunderball. And they brought back Sean Connery. And there was that one year where there were two James Bonds at the same time. <laughs> it was like this really strange war over the rights to Thunderball. The Avignon um, papacy of Bond rights. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So McClory licensed the rights to Thunderball uh, for Never Say Never Again. And then he tried to remake Thunderball one more time after the success of Goldeneye. He tried to remake it again as a movie that was going to be called Warhead 2000 AD. And it was going to star either Liam Neeson or they were going to bring back Timothy Dalton to play Bond. So this was uh, Sony Pictures. MGM sued Sony. And then a few years later, when they had an out-of-court settlement, they got the rights to Casino Royale, the novel, back. Because I guess they had lost the rights to, to Columbia Pictures. So it's so confusing uh, when you watch these movies because Casino Royale was released by Sony and MGM. but And so were the rest until No Time to Die, which is now uh, has been brought to you by MGM and Universal Pictures. Not to be confused with Universal Exports, the fake company James Bond works for. Two different companies. But there was this, it just continued. The the uh, McClory, uh, what happened in, in 2013, there was a settlement between Eon and the estate of Kevin McClory, where they finally got back the character of Blofeld and the name Spectre. This was after they made Skyfall. So they made this decision to use Blofeld and use Spectre immediately in the James Bond movies. So then they made Spectre and they had to retcon everything to, to describe quantum as this super shadowy secret organization that was actually just a division of an even bigger super secret criminal organization. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Mergers and acquisitions, even in the world of black market espionage but quantum appeared to control the entire world but it, it turns out that they're just a part of specter which is even more powerful <laughs> it's like i don't understand it, i think these bond movies have been trying to emulate uh, successful things around them obviously casino royale owes a lot to 24 the tv show and to the Bourne films and to Batman Begins. I mean, they were made around the same time, but they're the same kind of idea, right? The origin story, how James Bond came to be. In Quantum of Solace uh, is very much like a Bourne movie. The average shot in Quantum of Solace is two seconds. It's just constant editing. Some of it's very cubist, actually. <laughs> and then some of it's, uh, you know, just really fast paced. But there are also moments that are almost subliminal the way they flash past you. And then, uh, so Skyfall doesn't have quantum in it at all. There's, I don't even think they mention quantum in the movie. Maybe they say it once. It's all about uh, the evil Javier Bardem, who, by the way, had the best entrance to a Bond villain. I can't Un think of a better one. Unquestionably. It also, it also taught us the valuable lesson of how to get rats off of an island. Exactly. But to me, uh, Skyfall was, it was just... It was too much like The Dark Knight. That's how it felt to me. People have made those comparisons previously. And also that uh, um, Alfred Finney's character is a lot like Alfred. Yeah. And and Javier Bardem, if you put Joker makeup on his face, he would be the, you know, you would see it. <laughs> He's just the Joker, basically. And now when we get to, to Spectre and No Time to Die, 
now I sort of feel that there's this Marvel Cinematic Universe stuff going on that they've that Spectre has all this world building and tying everything together. All of a sudden, uh, Blofeld is in charge of everything, and all the Bond villains we've seen for the last three movies were all part of his master plan. <laughs> so <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, and that's where it obviously kind of begins to the Uberos begins to swallow itself whole. Uh, yeah, if I do nothing else with my time on this podcast. I will. I will attempt to uh, mount a meager defense of the of the film Spectre, which I actually quite enjoy. Perhaps you know that's more of a, a statement on me than it is the film itself. Oh no! But I. It's probably my hangups about Bond. I'd love. Yeah, please tell me. I think that I mean like, obviously from the time that the film's title was announced, you kind of saw the track that it was going on. The uh, the announcement that Christopher uh, Christoph Waltz had been cast, uh, you know, made it fairly obvious that he, regardless of the whatever I, I don't even remember what name he has early on in the film, was going to be Blofeld. <laughs> um, but I think it's uh, you know for it, coming right after Skyfall heard it uh, in terms of audiences' expectation for it. I think the Mexico City sequence is phenomenal in terms of both its action and its cinematography, as is the. Uh, the scene with um, the, where they're in the boardroom, where he attends the, the the first meeting of Spectre, where they're all dealing in the shadows. It does mm-hmm. have Monica Bellucci as a, a Bond girl, yes, uh, who is phenomenal. I love the train fight in Morocco with Dave Bautista, uh, who does a phenomenal job, although obviously doesn't have any lines as Mister Hanks. And there's something very cool about just you know M from Beyond the Grave telling Bond. Kill Marco Schiara and don't miss the funeral, as a way of <laughs> of setting him off on that course. Yeah, I I I thought that the part where Blofeld was drilling a hole in Bond's brain to torture him was severely unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think like shouldn't this movie be more fun than this? It kind of comes apart at the end uh, in that sequence with the exploding watch. Also, when he's escaping that facility, he is standing in an open field and manages to gun down about 20 goons while not sustaining any injury. And, I did, and the whole sequence of the, at the hollowed-out corpse of the former MI6 at the end is a bit on the nose. Also, they kind of misuse Andrew Scott, who mm-hmm. obviously had done a very good job as Moriarty on the uh, Sherlock series, but is kind of just a... Uh, you know, I, you can see what they were attempting to do with that character, and it didn't quite connect. I also find, and this was true in No Time to Die, too, that as much as I love Ray Fiennes and the character of Gareth Mallory, he's a rather inept uh, M, I find. Yeah. I mean, jumping ahead to No Time to Die, M is uh, suddenly in charge of like some like evil... <laughs> DNA matching, uh, you know, thing that can be weaponized <laughs> in a secret laboratory that is off the books, and that he also has uh, uh, access to like launch missile strikes. <laughs> That's the thing about these movies that is funny is that uh, they don't get into Brexit or anything like that, but they do represent on screen this image of. England and Britain as a mighty global superpower that doesn't really exist in the real world anymore. Certainly not to the extent that I don't imagine the British Navy has a presence in the channel between Japan and Russia. I don't think that like Boris Johnson is going to be, you know, authorizing missile strikes. (laughs) 
Or that M is going to have to run this by Boris Johnson. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I just, Spectre was just too long. Uh, I agree with you that it had some good parts the, and the Mexico City part was the best part. And a Bond movie shouldn't peak in the pre-title sequence. And for me, it just went on way too long. Everything was a little distended and it, and it didn't really feel like a Bond movie to me. And I thought that the shoehorning in of Blofeld and making him his half brother or something, his, and, and that he was the mastermind of this whole thing. And I'll tell you, I cracked up at the end when, when Daniel Craig's running around in the basement and he sees all those rooms and there's like pictures of all the Bond villains up on the wall. I just, I go outside of my head when I'm watching these movies. Like I start thinking about like Blofeld going there like two hours before to put the pictures up. <laughs> <laughs> like Blofeld, like uh, like getting, you know, it's like decorating for the birthday party, the surprise birthday party. But like, is Blofeld like that got that much time that he can like go running around putting up pictures of the other Bond villains to like try to destroy James Bond's brain? Interior design. <laughs> this is secondary fashion. Blofeld, Christoph Waltz gave one of the best performances I've seen this century in Inglorious Bastards. He's basically a Bond villain in that movie. So when I heard that he was playing Blofeld, I had really, really high hopes. I thought he was very underwhelming as the big bad. But I'll tell you that I actually liked him more in No Time to Die. I thought he was much better as Blofeld on a, in a shorter uh, time on screen. Well, they certainly utilize him a lot better in No Time to Die. Uh, to your point, it kind of takes too long, Inspector, to get to the point where you know that he is Blofeld, and then it kind of races to its finish. Um, and per your point, he doesn't really get to tur- turn on his acting chops as much. But I do find that it's somewhat limited. It was a delight to see him again uh, mm-hmm. in the in the in the latest film. Um, Still running the world from a prison cell. Yeah. No, and and looking more like Blofeld, because he got disfigured at the end of Spectre. But, you know, you got to have that big scar on your face. To me, the ultimate uh, Blofeld is Donald Pleasance in You Only Live Twice. I was just about to ask you if that was your preference. I am also a Pleasance man, although I must say I do really enjoy Telly Savalas' portrayal of the character. Yeah, he's more suave in that one. Um they have a James Bond who could play comedy, Daniel Craig, we, as we've has been proven a few times in his career, most notably in Knives Out. But I, one of the things that I liked about No Time to Die was that the humor has been missing from these Bond movies, uh, for the most part. And I thought that the 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 repartee was pretty natural and felt like a Bond movie kind of repartee. I was really worried it was going to be soy banter. <laughs> They're going to be like the Avengers. Like I, that bond was going to be like, uh, that just, just happened. Walking away from a massive yeah. explosion. <laughs> no, they do. Did you a- forget about the whole doomsday ray thing? <laughs> you know, like I was so worried that they were going to go in that direction and they didn't. No. And it had a lot of beats of an old bond film. Like the, the Cyclops henchman character felt like very yeah. much a touch out of old bond. And that was great. Like yeah. you said, the megalomaniac in the volcano base was back. Uh, you know, the, uh, Felix Leiter was there. All the characters in this movie are very good. Billy Magnuson has a very good turn as kind of a, a psychotic CIA or a State Department attaché. And a bit of a fanboy of Bond, too. Um, like, he even says at the beginning, like, I'm a big fan. <laughs> I love your work. 
I think that, you know, the only downside, and I, I didn't feel this way when I watched it, but with the benefit of about a week, I do think that Remy Malik, great actor though he is, uh, does not do a, does not have a particularly strong uh, turn as the, uh, as the main villain. Um, but not to a point that it ruins the movie overall for me. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll put it this way. Rami Malek is one of the drags about the Rami Malek performance is that he's a pretty weak bond, but without giving too much away, he's a very consequential villain for bond to come up against. I'll put it that way. Certainly. It's also one who seems to have mastered the being able to stay the same age for 30 years. I know. I know. Cause the first part of the movie takes place, I guess in the nineties. It must, yeah. Madeline Swan is about 10 years old in the opening sequence. So obviously you flash forward about 20 years and then there's a five-year time flash in this movie as well. I don't want to give too much away. I want to leave some of it for the enjoyment of the fans. But I will say uh, the opening sequence of No Time to Die um, that takes place in, in, a, in a mountain town in Italy where Madeline Swan and Bond are vacationing. And then you find out there is an alternative purpose for their trip that in Bondian fashion turns out to be an ambush. And, uh, you know, you get to see the Aston Martin in action and all of its gadgetry. It is a breathless sequence that goes on for about 20 minutes. And when it hit the, title track and the Billie Eilish song began to play. I had a mile wide smile on my face. Oh yeah. Both in jubilation for being back and seeing an action movie in theaters, but also because I truly believe it's one of the best opening sequences in the history of the franchise. Yeah, I think so too. One of the things that I thought was really great about the opening of this movie was how uh, strong the visual language was in the film at the beginning. When you see the bad guy with that mask, that looks kind of like the weird masks that the doctors were wearing in Brazil. Like it had that really uh, sort of cartoonishly evil uh, Cupid doll, sort of satanic Cupid doll look on its face. Um, and it got damaged. It got like a hole smashed in it. Um, and he's, he's his whole family was killed by Mr. White. So he's there to avenge his family's death. And he also got disfigured uh, some kind of a chemical, uh, agent and his face is you can see that his face is all fucked up behind the mask and he shoots uh, Madeline's mother and the Madeline escapes and runs across the ice and eventually slips into the ice and and the Rami Malek character starts opening fire on the on the frozen ice and we see some of the bullets getting through but we also see the ice being shattered then a few minutes later uh, when we're in Italy and Bond is with the grown-up Madeline who is still we can tell is still thinking about this weird shit that happened to her when she was a kid that probably informed her becoming a psychologist. Um, the Aston Martin gets in an ambush and the bad guys are shooting away at the bulletproof glass. And it's, it's holding together through all these assaults of, uh, you know, high velocity weaponry and the broken glass starts to look a lot like the ice and it starts to feel like the return of this repressed traumatic memory that Madeline had. And, and then when that sequence is over, then we go to the very beautiful uh, opening credits. I think this was the best of the bond themes for the Craig era. It felt to me most like a bond theme. I'm, I don't love Skyfall as much as everybody else. I know why it was a big hit. 
Likewise, I am a, I am, and I you know should have included this in my my uh, attempt to provide salvation for Spectre. I really like I really like writings on the wall by Sam Smith. Yeah. as a Bond theme. Yeah, um, everyone hates the one from Quantum of Solace, but I don't I don't mind it. It's actually very good. The Jack White and Alicia Keys. Yeah, and uh, the the late great Chris Cornell's "You Know My Name" in yeah. Casino Royale is also very very good. That's a great title sequence, although in a way it also reminds me of a screensaver, like when your game of solitaire is over, <laughs> all the cards are flying around. <laughs> There's something a little bit low rent about Casino Royale. I don't hold it against the movie, but like for the big card game and that to be Texas Hold'em <laughs> poker. For $10 million. And there, are, and there are parts where it sort of feels like you're watching a poker show on TV, like they're all around the table and then Mathis says, He's got to, he has to get the river or whatever. I don't understand the rules of poker. Forgive me. <laughs> but, but it felt like this sort of like big budget, violent version of the world poker tour. <laughs> right down to what the, uh, the dealer's wearing. And for me, the best villain in the Craig Bond era is Mads Mikkelsen. Like what? It, I didn't really know who he was when I saw Casino Royale. Nor did I, but it obviously was a role that launched him to to much stardom and and was phenomenal in that uh, in that role. Oh right yeah, down, right down to the very sinister touch of weeping blood. Ugh. I know, and I love that uh, sequence where he uh, poisons him and he has to go defibrillate himself in his car, <laughs> and then goes back to the table and sits down. <laughs> so good. I didn't mind that Casino Royale ran long. I felt that Casino Royale had one climax too many. It, I think it, it kept on ending for like a 45 minutes. The car crash when he leaves the tournament feels a bit unnecessary. But of yeah. course, and, and Mickelson's death feels a bit anticlimactic the first time you watch it, but it kind of makes more sense in the broader picture. We should talk a little bit about the uh, the conclusion of this film and see how whether we can say anything about it without spoiling it. <laughs> What did you think of the ending, Liam? <laughs> well, I, uh, well, well, Jesse, I, uh, I thought it was a very fitting end to the Craig era. I, uh, I'm not uh, too insecure in my masculinity to admit that I teared up a little bit as mm-hmm. the film reached its climax. Mm-hmm. Um, without uh, spoiling it too much for the audience there, it has created a, uh, an interesting playing field for where the franchise goes next. Uh, the one and only time I ever cried watching a Bond movie was George Lazenby at the end of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. That touched me. The, the, the touching conclusion of this movie did not induce tears from my eyes, but I was aware that this was the last time we were going to see him in the, in the role. So that was sad because he was such a good Bond. I think, you know, you and I were going to, talk about this a little bit at the end, but I really do believe that he now having seen these films and kind of grown up with him over the last 15 years, I really do believe he's in the pantheon just below Sean Connery. For me, Sean Connery is the James Bond by which we measure all other bonds. And on that scale, then Craig is number two. I think for me before Craig, I would say that Lazenby was number two. 
even though he only made one movie and even though he was dubbed <laughs> a lot of the time and you could tell he wasn't a professional actor, I thought he was, I mean, it's too bad that he had such a, he was such a temperamental guy and he sandbagged his own career so much because I thought he was really, really good as a James Bond, like as a figure on screen. And this reminds me of the one other thing that I want to say about what I love so much about Daniel Craig is that when he showed up in Casino Royale, it had felt like we'd been going a few years without having a new movie star. And that's what I really liked about him. He was like such a good actor and such a great screen presence. He's uh, certainly had a, you know, a, a great career, both pre and post bond. He's truly the most winning one of the most winning uh, human beings alive, having both the, the fame, the fortune, being married to Rachel Weisz, and now having yeah. had many star turns as, as, as James Bond. Yeah, and I mean, and I think he had uh, increasing creative control. I think he got a producer credit on Spectre. He probably has one on this one too. Um, I, I think that it's a testament to what a good Bond he was, that they gave, I don't think any other James Bond got a, proper ending and a proper send-off they would always just go on to the next bond but with this one it was like a planned exit that's certainly in your mind when you're watching the film it's uh but to your point it is certainly a more distinctive uh uh ending for the for this iteration of bond than any that came before it I also think that in uh, just to say again, that I think that the bond producers wanted to get in on some of that Marvel action, the way that they tied all these movies together so that it's like the bond cinematic universe. Um, for all we know, there might be an Anna de Armas spinoff because her character was so good in such a short amount of time. I would recommend to the bond producers, Barbara and Michael, if you're listening, bring Anna de Armas back for the next iteration of Bond. The way that Judy Dench got ported over, bring Anna de Armas over. Make her the Bond girl in the next movie. Think about your James Bond in relation to whether or not he'd have chemistry with Anna de Armas. The danger that you invite in that uh, invitation, of course, is that MGM has since been bought by the mother corp, Amazon. So now you might see her in an ongoing oh series. On, on a, on the Bond series on Amazon Prime. Oh, God. Liam, I didn't even think of that, but I think you're right. Oh. The content it, the content machine needs I know. to churn, that's, Jesse. You know, you know what? That's where they'll put uh, the sort of retro Bond thing. They'll, they'll make that a limited series on Amazon. Because I always dreaded that they were going to take James Bond back to the 50s and make him a period piece. I was at one point there was talk of Tarantino doing that with Pierce Brosnan as Bond, but to put it in the fifties, I would have watched that or the sixties. I mean, um, th yeah, they were thinking of that. And I figure, I think it's inevitable. Do you remember that movie, the man called uncle from a couple of years ago, that kind of, I do. I think that, that kind of approach to a bond to put in, in the sixties or something and, and fuck sakes, make Henry Cavill bond. If you're going to do that. He'd be an okay James Bond, I think. I could live with that over uh, a CGI Sean Connery or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, in a way, you shouldn't be allowed to be Superman and James Bond in one lifetime. <laughs> but he's physically the right size. Liam, which what would you recommend that the Bond series goes from here? 
It is my hope that Danny Boyle will come back and direct the next one. I liked your suggestion on Twitter a couple, I think last week, that Martin Campbell helm yet another reboot of the franchise, though I recognize he's 75 years old at this point. (laughs) Uh, I'd like to see... Uh, something I was thinking about when I was doing research for the pod is I found an article where Steven Soderbergh raves about Honor Majesty's Secret Service and about how it's held up and I, I really got me cheering about how I'd love to see a Soderbergh uh, Bond directed oh, Bond Here's one more thing that I want to say about how I kind of accept how No Time to Die ends and that I'm not too worried about uh, whether or not they can bring James Bond back after what we see in No Time to Die. I'm trying to be as creative in the uh, dancing around so that (laughs) so I don't get any hate mail. (laughs) This is what I appreciated about No Time to Die. It's a Bond movie that takes risks with the actual character where you know, we watch Bond movies where, you know, he's always in danger, but we know how it's going to end. And so one movie in the Bond series that doesn't give you the expected ending is On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which this movie aligns itself with. We hear various parts of the music from On Her Majesty's throughout No Time to Die. And it has an ending that is as tragic as On Her Majesty's. I won't say who dies, but, you know. And then cues up the, the Louis Armstrong at the end, coming yeah. in over the credits. I thought it was very nice the way that the movie actually ends. The very last thing that we see is the Bond car driving into a tunnel uh, in the countryside. And the camera sort of, as the car moves through the tunnel, the camera basically fades out into that circle of the car in We Fade to Black, which is an ironic mirroring of how Bond movies begin with the gun barrel opening. It was like, a, it was like the, the last thing you see before you die sort of thing. And it was sort of the last thing you see before this Bond era dies and we move on to the next. So, you know, I thought since this movie takes risks, you know, that's how on her majesty's secret service ended. But then we just picked it up right again with diamonds are forever and they reboot it. And we don't need, nobody explains to us why Sean Connery is James Bond. Now, you know, (laughs) we just move on with the story and live and let die did the same thing. And I think that what the bond producer should do is not get too uh, hung up on origin stories and explaining everything is that they should just start a new bond movie just the way they always did. Show us who Bond is. The best reveal of a Bond in a Bond movie, for my money, is in The Living Daylights, the way that Timothy Dalton's character, he just spins around and we see the new Bond and it's very good. I don't remember being as impressed by any of the other Bond intros. Funny now that you say that, it's kind of difficult to even kind of think of the introduction points. I guess the first time you see Pierce Brosnan, he's leaping off of a dam. Which is pretty cool, but obviously lacks the style points with the Dalton entrance. Well, the very first time you actually see Brosnan as Bond in a Bond movie is in GoldenEye, where he his head drops down upside down in a toilet stall. That's the that's how you're introduced to the new James Bond. <laughs>
but uh, you know, again, I never really, I didn't love Pierce Brosnan. I, I sometimes uh, go looking for trouble on Twitter by shit talking Goldeneye just to get the millennials mad at me. I was going to say all the '90s kids that played it on N64, <laughs> and it was their introduction to the character. James Bond what are your top five bonds? So I think my top five bonds, and I, to put them in some kind of order, are GoldenEye, Casino Royale, um, You Only Live Twice, which is my favorite entry of the Connery series, uh, mm-hmm. and the first one that I ever saw when I was about mm-hmm. eight years old. I want to give a shout out to a great, although now gone, independent video chain in Halifax called Video Difference uh, that I used to go to. And they had all of the Bond films uh, uh, arranged in a very cool way on one of the walls in the store. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say I am also a big fan of The World Is Not Enough, which I think is an underrated uh, entry in the Bronson era and a very, very good uh, villain in Robert Carlyle as Renard. Mm-hmm. And I think I would round off, I don't want to leave Roger Moore out in the cold. I am also a big fan of Moonraker. <laughs> <laughs> I love Moonraker. Uh, I put a list together of uh, not a top 10 bonds, but a most bonds. Top ten most bonds, <laughs> and Moonraker is what number one by a substantial <laughs> right mo- country mile. Yeah, I think I put them in order of quality, but not necessarily. I think the first two or three were the ones that I legit think are great films, and then the rest were what I think are great James Bond films. You know, again, James Bond movies uh, for me are in a sort of their own little world, and I generally gauge them all against one another. And I sort of, you know, that's where I get into Marvel cinematic universe mode. Sometimes is thinking about James Bond. Although with me, I also, it's a problematic fave because I also know that there's all this bad stuff about James Bond and bad, uh, bad politics and bad sexual politics and, you know, and, and, and sometimes even bad movies, but I sort of, um, I take them for what they are, you know, it's kind of like stuff that you don't, it doesn't have to actually like be a bad influence on you um, or whatever. I guess people are worried about that. They're misrepresentative and, and racist. Some of them have been racist and stuff, but I just sort of basically just um, accept it all for what it is. Yeah. I think that that's the appropriate way to approach it. I think it's the way that a lot of people do. I think it's kind of an endearing thing about the character and the franchise that, you know, they've been making these things for 50 years now Mm -hmm. and uh, 60 years. Um, And I think that, you know, Bond has it, Bond is its own, very much its own thing. and, And the power of it endures. These movies are still huge events every time they come out. So I'll tell you my my top five bonds. Number one is Casino Royale these days. Number two is On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Number three is You Only Live Twice. I know that it's racist and, and it's gross, <laughs> but it's also the most James Bond of all the James Bond movies. 
it's the stuff that they're making fun of in Austin Powers. The Austin Powers parody is one of the reasons why the Bond movies have to be so serious in this day and age. I think they were really worried about getting anywhere near the idea of the bald uh, evil genius in the narrow jacket and stuff. Um, I think with the new reboot, they should not be so worried about the Austin Powers shadow anymore and make it a little more fun. And, and then finally, The Spy Who Loved Me would be number four and Goldfinger's number five. A classic. Because that's so James Bond, that one. One reason why that I hold The Spy Who Loved Me in such high esteem was that was my first Bond movie. You were saying off air that pretty much everybody's first James Bond movie is their favorite. <laughs> <laughs> like it's always in the top five and it always boils down to, I loved it when I was eight years old. Yeah, that's about the age I was when I saw You Only Live Twice. Yeah. How did you see it? Did you watch it on TV? I rented it at uh, Video Difference and watched it in my basement of my childhood home. And remember thinking uh, just how cool it was and how suave it was. And like you said, the big volcano lair at the end and things like that. Um, the... You know, you're when you're eight years old, you're pretty wowed by a guy getting rolled up into a <laughs> into a mattress, <laughs> shot repeatedly, and managing to live through it. Another thing that was cool about my childhood was that we had multiplexes in Toronto, and they used to show repertory programming. And one summer, they showed double bills of all the James Bond movies in order. So I actually got to see uh, You Only Live Twice and Thunderball and Goldfinger in a movie theater as a kid. That's very cool. For one ticket price. So it was like a crash course. Uh, so I loved Roger Moore as Bond when I first saw the Bond movies. But once I caught up to Sean Connery, he was number one. And he shall always remain. Scotland forever. <laughs> and in fact, I like all the Bonds. Like Even though I rank Pierce Brosnan at the bottom, I don't dislike him as Bond. He's just not. He just didn't do it for me. What are your ideas? Or do you have a short list for who you'd like to see in this role? going forward my top choice is tom hardy as james bond i think he's perfect for the role some people say that he's too old but roger moore was 46 when he started uh with live and let die and tom hardy's like 43 or 44 but physically in terms of the ian fleming concept of the character and in terms of also being like handsome attractive to both sexes which is another thing I think you need when you're casting Bond is Tom Hardy. He's my number one. Who's yours? Uh, I tried to think about the age question and then put it, uh, you know, out of my mind for the reasons that we discussed here. Cause I think, you know, someone in their forties can still do it. Um, so I batted around the idea of, you know, some people that have been mentioned for it before, like Matt Smith, who I'm a big fan of, or Henry Cavill, which might be too obvious of a choice. After having recently seen The Green Knight, I really think Dev Patel could do it. Mm -hmm. And I th would probably be my number one pick because they, you know, they've made some noise about wishing to go in that direction and to see a person of color play Bond. I think he'd be phenomenal in that role. Yeah. He is also, I like him more and more over time. Like I've, I've learned to quite like him and, he's certainly capable of playing bond. Um, the other guy that I would say, if you're going to hire another like white Brit to play bond, who could probably pull it off and would be in the model of where I think the franchise should go, which is a little bit lighter and a little bit more, you know, 
gadgety and more fun would be to get Dan Stevens to play Bond. I think that would be a really good choice. And I think working in his favor is obviously a lot of the cultural cachet that he has from the, the Eurovision movie being as big mm-hmm. a hit as it was. I started thinking that he'd be a good Bond when I saw the guest. I thought when he's older, he could play Bond. That's how I felt while I was watching the film. And he's 39. And so that puts him at the age that Daniel Craig was. But that's if they want to go lighter and and funner and younger. I think that that would be the way to go for him. If they want a more of a Brosnan, Roger Moore type, I think he'd be good. And he'd also be tough enough. I agree with you. Something else that I'm thinking of that occurs to me while we're sitting here discussing this is how much time there will be between the Bonds. Uh, You know, there was only a four-year break between uh, Die Another Day and Casino Royale. There was a six-year break between the Dalton and Brosnan eras. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. I guess it'll be interesting to see how long they – you know, how much time they take to conduct a search and, and, and decide creatively where they want it to go next. Yeah. I have a feeling we'll see Bond again by 2024. I think in a couple of years. Um, and, you know, but they're going to want to go big because the Bond movies were the biggest they've ever been with Craig as Bond, which I don't think anybody suspected. I was also looking at some uh, financial figures about the Bond movies and Casino Royale only opened at 40 million. It wasn't that huge a hit. Which is surprising. By the time that Skyfall rolled around, it was massive and massive around the world. But that just points again to just how much people loved Casino Royale. So many people probably watched it on cable and on video that by the time uh, Quantum of Solace and Skyfall came around, they were pumped to see more Daniel Craig. I think that, um, you know, that... Tie, that ties into his legacy as much as anything as he can really he really did revive the franchise what's your least favorite bond movie i am not a huge fan of thunderball and i'm not a huge fan of tomorrow never dies i think my least favorite bond movie if i had to say the time the, the least fun i've had watching a bond movie is thunderball and a view to a kill sorry millennials but I didn't like it. <laughs> it had everything that I would have liked in a movie, uh, but it's the most boring Bond movie to me, and the mo- and and not enough is done with all the stuff they have at hand. But I do love the theme. The theme is one of the best Bond themes. So, um, Liam, before I, before I let you go, um, do you have anything else to say about Bond? Only that I think uh, I do, as Jesse did at the beginning, encourage everyone to go see the latest iteration. I think you will be greatly pleased with it. Uh, may he, in whatever form they so choose, continue to save the world for many more decades to come. May Britain someday be a global superpower again. (laughs) May Bond uh, depose more Latin American dictators backed by the United States. (laughs) 
Liam, uh, do you have you seen anything lately that you can recommend to the listeners? Uh, a couple of things. I saw the the Green Knight from A twenty four, which I thought was very mm-hmm. good, and would recommend even if you haven't read the uh, the tale ahead of time. Uh, I wouldn't recommend the Many Saints of Newark. <laughs> yeah. Something else that I also really liked and I think got, you know, was not critically well enjoyed, but I was recently perusing the Scorsese catalog and I actually really enjoyed bringing out the dead. If, oh, nice. If for, if for nothing else than Ving Rhames' incredible hairpiece in the movie. I should watch that again. I always think of it as not a very good Scorsese movie. I might have seen it at a bad time in my life or something. Um, I remember it being kind of boring, but I know a lot of people who really liked it. And I have, you know, the God Paul Schrader is back in my heart again. So maybe I should watch it again because it could just be me that day. It might actually be much better than I remember it as. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's kind of a nutty cage performance as yeah. uh, if, if there's any other kind and there's, you know, Goodman is there and, and Ving Rhames is there. And now I think it, you know, and one of the last movies that kind of, portrays New York in that way before it got totally gentrified at the turn of the millennium. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. That's one thing Scorsese has been pretty good about is sort of capturing midtown Manhattan, lower Manhattan before it got turned into uh, what it is now. Boring. <laughs> <laughs> Liam, where can people find you on Twitter? So I'm at Liam daily three on Twitter. I mostly, you know, tweet about politics and sports and, I'm not as I'm not as frequent and prolific a tweeter as, as Jesse, but you can check me out on there. I always encourage my my listeners to check out my guests because a lot of my uh, choices for putting people on the show is kind of curated by my Twitter feed. I recognize it also occurs to me, and I suppose this is the cost of doing business, but I will now be besieged by legions of Eternals fans. via my association with you you'll only get targeted if you like any of my eternals tweets that might i've been hearing about people getting blocked by the that eternals news account they were blocking people just for liking my jokes well it's a it's a small price to pay Uh, one other funny story about the eternals controversy is that there's this parody account of the eternals news uh fan account that started and it's also called Eternals News and they use the same avi and and header as the uh, f- the the fan account. So the fan account, which is unlicensed, has a parody account, and the fan account was telling them that they were impersonating them, and they were like, "You're impersonating being an Eternals fan," you know, like you make it seem like you're working for the Eternals. So what are you doing? That's the whole joke. Um, I, was, I saw that on Twitter the other day, and I was pretty sure that that was your handiwork. <laughs> a lot of people were, and people were DMing me and saying, "Is that you?" And I was like, "No." And even the the uh, the the person who's running that account said, "By the way, they think that I, that you're me." <laughs> <laughs> so, and all I'm doing is making these very obvious jokes about how stupid the Eternals is. Well, I feel like, like it's going like, to be it, – it runs the real risk of being the one – finally the Marvel film that flies a little too close to the sun. Yeah. Happy to do my part. <laughs> I mean it would be happening with or without my jokes. Uh, I just find it so funny that they're also very conspiracy-minded now that they think that I'm like Blofeld. <laughs> it all comes full circle. I'm not trying to hurt the Marvel fans' feelings with my jokes – I'm trying to make people laugh who are kind of sick of the monopoly of this stuff culturally, like who are also driven crazy by it. 
I have heard from people who like the Marvel movies and like my jokes. And that's my ideal <laughs> is that you appreciate what I'm making fun of. The right part of the circle to hit on the Venn yeah. diagram. Yeah. I'm not just being a cyber bully, although, you know, maybe sometimes I go overboard, but I'm actually trying to make like about five specific people on Twitter crack up. <laughs> well, it's, it's working for me. And I thought it was funny that this week they resorted to call you old as a, uh, <laughs> I know. Well, I let I I leaned into that. That's the other twist that I was doing. Um, somebody called me old because I've got well, I'm not young, but I also have gray hair. Um, and so uh, they said, "Oh yeah, shut up, old man," sort of thing. And I said, "I'm 68, and this is no way to talk to an old man." You know, like I started leaning into it, and then other people were tweeting me and saying dude, you're 68. Like it's already starting to spread around among these nerds that this is 68 year old man picking on teenagers. <laughs> and to me, that's funny. So I wanted to lean into it and say, you know, you whippersnappers. <laughs> the myth, the myth, the myth and the legend grows. I know. Like I was saying that within five years, I'll be a Marvel villain in one of the movies. <laughs> I'll be this guy who's trying to destroy the Eternals on Twitter. <laughs> Liam, this was so much fun. It was so great to talk about Bond with you. Um, please come back on anytime you like. Just oh. come up with a strong army once again. Jesse, that's like praise from Caesar, my friend. This was an absolute blast to do. Thank you. I will happily come back anytime. Liam Daly, thank you for joining me. Thank you, sir. Talk to you soon. Before we go, I just wanted to mention that we do have a Patreon. Patrons of the podcast get access to additional bonus episodes every month. And you can subscribe by going to patreon.com slash junkfilter. Coming soon to this podcast, Jacob Bacharach is returning. We're going to be discussing adapting Dune for the big screen. And we will dare to compare the David Lynch version to the upcoming Denis Villeneuve adaptation. For the latest news on the podcast, please follow us on Twitter at junkfilterpod. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawkins. Thank you so much for listening.